0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
1: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your
0: borough purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor.
1: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness.
0: So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal Elders past, present and those emerging. We're going back to the stick-ups this week on Australian True Crime with Arthur Bolkus. He's a criminal activist, actor, public speaker and proud father of two. But before he was all of these things, Arthur was a very promising young law student and a flamboyant armed robber. We begin our conversation by delving into Arthur's childhood and the incidents that germinated the seed of discontent in his mind.
1: Look, in my case, I didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'll go and rob a TAB. <laughs> no, I didn't. The process for me started when I was a kid. I grew up, well, from the age of six when my father suffered a serious uh, accident in a factory. Signed his rights away because he couldn't speak English and there were no migrant interpreters in those days. And overnight, my family became poor and I grew up on welfare. So, growing up on welfare impacted my life in profound ways ways I didn't sort of understand back then because I was a kid. But what happened was, I, I basically, at a young age, started to work to earn money if I wanted things because my parents didn't have the money. And I also started to steal. And look, to cut a long story short, I started stealing in small ways. And, you know, most people steal something at some point when they're young. But in my case, I kept doing it. And not only that, I really enjoyed doing it. And I particularly liked stealing things that were difficult to steal. And I stole some amazing things as a young person, let me tell you. And also
0: the first time you robbed a TAB, it went smoother than you thought it would, didn't it?
1: Yeah, look, coincidence comes into things. And, of course, I got the idea from watching TV where I saw a robbery being enacted of a bank. And I thought, wow, just think four minutes, three or four minutes, and all your financial issues are solved. But then I thought when the guys ran out of the bank and a cop killed them both, I thought, no, that's not a good... So how could you do that and not draw attention to yourself? I'd done drama at school. And you had to put makeup on and all that, so disguise myself. And in those days, I was in the city one day, and an army disposal store, looking into the window, and there they were, the implements of the trade. There was a balaclava, There were knives next to them, and next to the knives were a range of guns. Now they weren't real guns; they were imitations, replicas, but they looked real. You can't buy them now because too many people use them for that reason. And so I bought the gun. And so when I walked into the tab, unbeknown to me, I'd walked in just before closing time on a Saturday afternoon. They used to close late afternoon around 4.30 or 5 and reopen a few hours later. I didn't know that. So I happened to walk in just before closing time. And the manager was at the door and all the others had left. And I just stood there staring at him and he asked me again, he said, are you okay? Uh, We've closed, you have to go. And that's when I pulled the nozzle of the gun out of the bag and you'd think that we had rehearsed it because he just sort of walked back around into the counter area. I followed him, he pulled the drawer open and I stood there looking at him, real professional me, and he said, have you got a bag? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've got a bag. (laughs) Here it is. Now, I got away in those days with around $12,000, which by today's standards, I've calculated it on the internet, would be around $65,000, somewhere in the vicinity. Wow. And when I got back to the flat where I was, I remember I counted it three times because I I couldn't comprehend this amount of money. I thought I might get five or six grand or something like that. And that was the beginning of the end. Once, Once I got that money, There was just no turning back.
0: Uh, How old were you by this stage?
1: Just turned 21. Done um, three. I had two cars that I'd bought. I'd bought my girlfriend a sports car. And again, I was running out of money. So I thought, really blase now. No fear at all. I'll just go. In fact, I was driving home and I remember it was about two or three in the morning and I was going through St. Kilda Junction and I looked across and saw TAB and I just said, oh, I'll rob that tomorrow. Just like that. So that particular day on the Saturday morning, I went to um, this hotel in Carlton, which I used as my base. I put my disguise on. Each time, I did use a different disguise. So the first time, I was a a Vietnam veteran with an American accent. You know, bit deranged. You know, too many drugs uh, (laughs) in in Nam, and, and telling the guy, you know, I'd sort of seen things and been in war and killed people. and
0: Wow, just... that's very, very clever, isn't it? So that they'd, they'd give a very different um, description to the coppers every time. Yeah, wow. yeah.
1: But the modus operandi was the same. Someone would wait, see, this was the part. And, and I didn't sort of think of that because I wasn't a crim. So the second robbery, I was a Frenchman. I went and got this sort of safari suit with a little straw hat with a feather in it. Little goatee beard, mustache, and you know, I changed the shape of my face, cotton wool and sponges in my mouth, up my nose. So I look really different. The third one, I'm like a bloody mobster out of the 40s. I, I had this double breasted pinstripe suit on I, 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 and a red velvet tie, and I had a friggin' hat on. Talk about attracting, you know, attention to yourself. So, you know, I wasn't all there. By that stage, I I wasn't well. I wasn't eating, sleeping. I was just drug affected. I did. Look, that particular day when I walked in, like every other time, I walked in, the people there, I went to this results board. I just made out that I was looking at the horse, the, the results, waited till everyone left, waited for the manager to come out behind the security enclosure and say, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah. But on this occasion, everyone left, but the manager, who was a woman, didn't do that. She actually went to the phone, and I could hear her kind of whispering to someone. And I thought, "Who's she talking to?" So I wait around a few more minutes, and she just hangs there. And then, instinctively, I knew something's wrong. Taken too long. Go. And as I turned to my left and took one step, a police divisional van pulled up out the front. Now I hadn't done anything. She'd called them because what I didn't know, and they showed me this, they had these little poster things made, uh, and it was meant to look like me. It didn't really. And it said something like, dangerous, do not approach, call police, blah, blah, blah. So I was a suspicious character, perhaps. And so they walked into the tab, and I retraced my step, and I'll never forget the feeling in my body. I've never had a sensation like that. My body went kind of hard. It was almost like I kind of crystallized, and I just froze. And one of the police officers walked up behind me and gently sort of touched me on the shoulder and sort of drew me around and said, excuse me, sir, can we talk to you? And when he touched me, I shit myself, literally, literally in my pants. And I didn't realize that until I was chained to a table in the police headquarters there. So that was an extreme physical reaction. Now, that was loss of control. Now, in those few seconds when that happened, when he touched me and I panicked, I turned, he looked at me, I looked at him, he must have sensed something and he put his hand right on my sort of stomach and he felt the gun in my belt under the suit and his eyes kind of widened. And that's when we started grappling and I'm trying to pull it out and he's trying to stop me. He tried to sort of trip me and he threw a leg at my leg and I pulled back and pushed him at the same time and he fell on his backside right in front of me and I pulled the gun out, the imitation. And it was a big gun. The other officer at that point was had half withdrawn his thirty-eight service revolver. Which is very real. Oh, yes. Now, had he drawn his gun a fraction before me, I would have died. And you wouldn't blame him for going bang, 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 bang. But I got it out first and I threatened to kill his partner. I said, put your gun back or I'll kill him, something like that. So he put his gun back. And that's when all I could think of was go. But I had sense enough to know that they had real guns. And so I had to take their guns. So I said to the one on the ground, give me your gun. He said, I'm not allowed. And I pulled the trigger of my gun back and I said, if you don't, so he gave me his gun. And this is where the judge was really dirty on me, that I had a loaded revolver. And, again, I'll never forget. There are certain things you never forget, and this was so clear in my mind. I had my finger on the trigger and my whole body was shaking, shaking. So you stole his very
0: real gun then with your fakie. You had it at his head and you said, give me your gun, and then you held his real gun That's at right, I
1: did. And then the other cop, I said, right, into the divvy van. I just wanted to go. I, my car was parked in a little lane around the corner, but I just wanted to get out of there. So he jumps in the divvy van. I jump in beside him. <gasps>
0: so you've kidnapped a bloody copper a as copper, well.
1: that's right. So I said, drive. And he said, I haven't got the keys. The policeman inside's got the keys. <laughs> God. So i So I remember I stood there, I thought, what am I going to do now? I said, give me your gun. So I took his gun as well. So now I've got three guns. I put his gun in my belt and I've got the other two guns in my hands and I jump out of the Divi van and I run back inside, but they've seen me coming. They've closed the security gate and they've run out the back of the tab. So I'm standing in the tab, looking left and right. Then I ran out onto the street. The cops just sitting in the car looking at me, ran around the corner, jumped in. The little car that I had—it was a Triumph Spitfire—and it took off, and I couldn't breathe. I remember I was <laughs> trying, and I was trying to pull the tie off, and pulling the fake beard and moustache off, and just taking big gasps of air, and thinking, "I'll never do that again, man." You know, they're onto me, and I crossed over Chapel Street and Dandenong Road. This green Holden does a U-turn, and it follows me. And as I'm going along, there's like four lanes, and they came up alongside me. I'm in the left lane. They come up alongside me, and the policeman in the passenger side puts up a little sign saying police, and he's indicating pull over. I'm acting kind of dumb. like Me? Pull over. <laughs> <laughs> so I pull over. I pull over in the service lane, right? And they pull up, but they pull up about maybe 25, 30 metres behind. Because they know I've got guns. And they slowly walk either side of my car. They're approaching my car, and I notice the big fella <laughs> of the two. He pulls his jacket back and he pulls out the biggest gun I've ever seen. It was a 357 Magnum. And as soon as I saw the gun, I just hit the accelerator and off I go. So they jump in their car, they put a siren on the roof, and it starts wailing. But there's traffic, right? There's four lanes there. And as I'm approaching, I've done now a great big circle. And I'm back where I started, Chapel Street and Dandenong Road. And I notice up ahead, there's police cars across the road. And the cops see me and they know it's my car, but I just go through and they all scatter, right? So they all jump into their cars and they're after me. So at one point, I remember I I looked in the rear vision and I remembered thinking, is this really happening? this is like a movie. And I kept thinking, they're chasing you. You know, they're going to catch you. And eventually one of them just roared past me and slammed the brakes on side on and I couldn't get through. So as my car was still moving, I jumped out with me guns, gun in each hand, of course. gun in my belt, which I was paranoid was going to go off and blow me balls off. And I start running. I just run. I remember there was a low fence and I tried to sort of go over the top and I clipped it and I hit the ground, rolled around. And as I was about to get up, I heard a voice and the voice said, move and I'll blow your fucking head off. And I turned around and there was a policeman, it might have been the detective, I can't remember, standing in that sort of arm position, holding the gun, the wrist and all that. And if I'd tried something, he would have shot me. And I just put my hands up.
0: Thank you to our guest on this episode, Arthur Balkus. Arthur will join us on the next episode of Australian True Crime 2 when we go into his experiences in prison, including a couple of stints in Pentridge. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
1: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.